This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour for Wednesday, September 6th. I'm Philip Nice, Assistant Managing Editor for the Philadelphia Trumpet Magazine. Trumpet Hour is the voice of the Philadelphia Trumpet. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future, as you heard there. Most of our focus is on news, economy, politics, and trends. Every Friday, we give you the Week in Review Four of the Trumpet staff writers watch world news as divided into four regions, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and Anglo-America. And there's a specific reason uh, why they are divided up in that way. And you notice that when you listen to Trumpet Hour Week in Review and when you read the Philadelphia Trumpet, Europe is kind of an obvious region to delineate. Asia is massive uh, and divided, but there is a reason why we treat it as one of four blocks. The Middle East is comparatively tiny, but we give it equal time to the bigger blocks, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And Anglo-America is literally all over the map, mainly the nations that speak English predominantly, but not only those nations. And there's a reason why we make Anglo-America one of those four blocks. So we divide it up in an interesting way for an interesting reason. And if you haven't joined us for the Week in Review edition of Trumpet Hour, please join us on Friday afternoon at four o'clock and see the who, what, when, and where of news, economy, politics, and trends. The Trumpet devotes a little less space and time to the rest of that list, discovery, health, family, but these things too are important to your life, and we're going to devote a significant portion of today's Trumpet Hour episode to discovery, and you'll see a little bit of the why, why that relates to news, why that relates to the Bible, why that relates in an exciting way to the future. But first, we go straight into the news, the hard news, and into the trend that this particular news is a part of. And we do so with Mihailo Zekic joining us from our offices in Edstone, England. Hello, Mihailo. Hello. You cover the Middle East region, and we've discussed a specific event that's part of a specific trend there in the Middle East. Let's start with the narrow and specific, the, the recent event that has uh piqued a lot of people's interest. And then let's expand out from there as to the trend that this is a part of and why it's significant. So hit us with the news event that caught your eye and that you've written on for thetrumpet.com. Of course. Well, it might be a little bit old news at this point, but it's no less pertinent. It happened last month on August 17th. The United States uh, approved Israel's sale of the Aero 3 missile defense system to Germany. Now, all these countries are considered what we would call the West. It's not that strange for the West to trade weapons once uh, to another, especially with a lot of uh, interesting things happening in the world in the Middle East, in Ukraine. But this is a pretty unique um, example. Uh, for one thing, the Aero 3, it's a, uh, well, it's a missile defense system. Israel, of course, gets barraged with rockets from places like Gaza, Lebanon all the time. This is not the Iron Dome. This is not meant for that kind of defense. These, this is meant for uh, to counter ballistic missiles outside of Earth's atmosphere. In other words, nuclear weapons. The U.S. had to grid screen light because it was a joint Israeli-U.S. project, and so the U.S. government had a stake. So for all intents and purposes, mainly an Israeli system. 
One thing to note about this is the size of the sale. It's at roughly $3.5 billion. It will be, or it is, Israel's largest weapons sale ever, which considering how much military equipment Israel sells to a lot of different countries, how much highly advanced equipment, this is a pretty big deal. And also the fact that it's selling it to, of all countries, Germany, which not too long ago was uh, maybe not Israel's, but the Jews, the Jewish people's biggest enemy by far. I'm of course referring to the Holocaust and everything that happened in World War II. That may seem like a long time ago, but it's still in a living memory. Almost everybody in Israel, or every Jew at least, has indirectly been impacted by it through family um, or even, of course, you know, one's own ancestors. So it's a pretty sensitive subject, and a lot of people in Israel and in Germany are recognizing how important it is, not just because of those physical details of the price tag and whatnot, but the fact that Israel and Germany are able to ha do this kind of deal, these two countries in, in particular, on how historic this is. Missile defense systems seem to be one of the most uh, important uh, assets, one of the most important military uh, weapons platforms that uh, are out there. You hear a lot about aircraft carriers and you hear about warplanes and, and uh, Germany's involved in uh, getting the F-35 fighter. But the missile defense systems, I noticed Russia's got its dangerous missile defense system. This arrow is meant to deter ballistic missiles going into the atmosphere. And and that price tag, you mentioned that. I'm glad you emphasized that. I saw a graphic recently that, that showed a stack of a million dollars, and it was about, I don't know, about the size of a cinder block or so if you were to put it in $100 bills. And then next to that was a billion dollars, and it was like 10 pallets of cash. I mean, it's, it's an enormous amount of money, and it's an enormous amount of trust. Uh, between, in this case, America, Israel, and Germany. This is not the only example, though, of the Jews working with their World War II oppressor and enemy is, is the, the least you could say about what the German regime under Adolf Hitler and the Nazis did to the Jewish people and how they viewed the Jewish people. The Jews clearly have turned a big, big page how is this the first time they've done that or is this this part of uh, an overall trend and if so how long has this been trend uh, going on well it's important to remember technically jewish german defense cooperation if you call that didn't start with even the state of israel if you go back even to world war one there are plenty of jewish soldiers in germany uh that fought for the kaiser uh, including as far as chemical weapons are concerned with the development of them, Albert Einstein. It's not like Jews have always looked upon Germany as this evil foe. There's actually been a lot of historical corroboration. Of course, you think the Holocaust would change that. But ever since the establishment of the state of Israel, Israel and at least West Germany, East Germany is a whole other can of worms, but West Germany has had a lot of cooperation with the state of Israel, including in some very, very sensitive stuff. Some little historical background. In 1960, uh, the Israelis captured the notorious architect of the Holocaust, or at least one of them, Adolf Eichmann, in Argentina, and shipped him over to Jerusalem for trial. The West German government at this point, and we've written about this before, they got a little bit antsy about this because Eichmann knew a lot of names of a lot of Germans that did not get tried in the Nuremberg trials, like 
sort of snuck in and uh, continued to work for the government of then West Germany. And in uh, 2021, uh, and again, we wrote about this, but the Times of London reported that part of the reason why the Israelis didn't press Eichmann for more of these names to expose some more of these figures is that the German government offered to help Israel out with a, a gift of about 2 billion Deutschmarks, or in today's money, you, over 5 billion US dollars for a nuclear program development in the Negev Desert in Israel's south. Israel is, at this point that we know of, the only nuclear weapon state in the Middle East, uh, or at least it has control of its own nuclear weapons. And if the Times report is accurate, it looks like Germany had a big part to play in that. That's obviously a really big example, but it's not the only one. Uh, Germany or West Germany for much of the Cold War was a huge arms supplier for Israel. In 1991, Germany agreed to construct two submarines for Israel. This was in the aftermath of the Gulf War, of course, another high point of tension in the Middle East. And the Merkava battle tank, some analysts say it's one of the best tanks in the world. It's Israel's homegrown tank. It uses German parts. And it's not just Israel depending on Germany for its own weapons, but the reverse is also true. We've seen this with the aero sale, but that's also true in other aspects as well. Maybe not even just Germany, but Europe-wide. Last year, there was a big scandal about the Pegasus software being used by certain EU member states. That's a, an Israeli uh, spyware software. And there was a big scandal in Europe about certain countries like Hungary, Poland, Greece, Spain being shown about using the spyware to hack private citizens, European citizens' phones for various reasons, to collect information on them, to go after their political enemies. This may not be Germany per se, but the European Parliament did a, an investigation and concluded that every single one of the EU's 27 member states was implicated in this spyware scandal somehow. Never mind the fact that the EU was spying on its own citizens. That's a, or that's a different story. But the fact that Israeli technology and the likes of spyware, the open secret is that Israel itself uses this kind of spyware to go after terrorists, to go after people that want to kill other people, to go after people that want to blow up buildings or hijack planes or whatever. That kind of technology is pretty sensitive. Yes, it's a, a private company, but let's get real. It's it, it's not as if the Israeli government isn't going to take advantage of this if foreign governments aren't already as well. And the Israeli government would let this kind of technology go to Europe-wide Germany wasn't implicated as much as some of these other countries, but still, I mean, a lot of these other countries were also implicated in the Holocaust in big ways, and they're all NATO allies. They all shared intelligence and technology with each other anyway. This is pretty sensitive stuff that we're talking about, That both that Germany is agreeing to give to Israel and Israel to be becoming dependent in some ways on German technology, but also Israel opening its own cards and letting Germany and Europe as a whole see what's some of its most vulnerable uh, defense equipment. It's a trusting relationship, isn't it? I The way you just laid that out, 1960, well, you start with nuclear weapons. You know, you start with cooperation in developing nuclear weapons. You, you uh, have Germany supplying weapons throughout the Cold War. You have German submarines. You have the Israeli battle tank and the Israeli spyware, as you said, uh, flowing in the other direction. So both countries, as you say, know their counterparts' most sensitive and most advanced technology or some of their most advanced technologies. 
And we've, we've, we talked before about the military exercises that there are two militaries learning to work together. We had the uh, actually urban combat training uh, in 2015. We had the Israeli fighter jets landing in Germany. That was pretty memorable for their, uh, I think it might have been the first ever Air Force military exercise. I could be wrong about that. But the naval exercises just earlier this year, and and the flybys or the uh, the Air Force cooperation is the thing that I, that I think of when I think of German Israeli partnership or cooperation because that's the point <laughs> they 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 paint uh, the livery of the the painting or the the decoration you could say of the of these warplanes you know one warplane with you know part of it is in Israeli insignia and part of that same warplane is in German insignia I mean. That is meant to send the message that we are so past, you know, we have advanced past the the Holocaust. We have turned the page. Germany is to be trusted with Israel's security. We've left behind the atrocities, the massive atrocities, the attempt to just blot out the existence of, of the Jews as a people. And Israel has eaten it up, has really gone all in, I would say. I mean, the Arrow 3 just being the latest example of that. Uh, but you obviously have a tone of warning and caution towards Israel as you as you rattle off those those uh, partnerships. And, and why is it that they haven't moved past? I mean, why is it that we can't, uh, that the, that trusting relationship should not be a, such a trusting relationship? Well, we'll use one concrete example for this from the the news from the past year and then we'll branch this out uh, in general like you said it's a trusting relationship you don't give your most critical elements of your national security to a country you think you're going to go to war with you don't even give them to countries that maybe you don't see as an enemy but could see them going into the wrong hands uh, the news event i was alluding to was that um the Ukrainian government has been pushing for Israel to sell it missile defense technology. Uh, it's been in the news quite a bit, uh, say, um, suicide drones from Russia coming over and attacking Ukrainian cities or things like that. Um, Ukraine sees how successful Israel is with defending its skies. It wants a piece of the pie as well. And Israel says, no, it's because those suicide drones are manufactured by Iran. There are Iranian soldiers in Russia right now helping the Russians know, learn how to use them. Who knows where the war will take place or how it will play out. I don't think Israel expects to go to war with Ukraine, but supposing Russia advances, gets a hold of some of that technology and gives it to the Iranians. The Iranians want to wipe Israel off the map. What happens if they figure out the inner workings of these defense systems and figures out how to shut them off? That's what Israel's most concerned about. And so that's why it's not going to Ukraine. It doesn't see that kind of problems with Germany. It sees Germany as someone completely trustworthy, as someone as trustworthy as can be. Well, never mind the fact that Germany and the EU in general is turning into a, like a muscular superpower in and of itself, which if you asked Israelis 50, 60 years ago, that would have been concerned. And never mind the fact of rising levels of anti-Semitism, of politician after politician, of military figure after military figure getting implicated in extreme anti-Semitic behavior. In the alternative for Deutschland, the, the German neo-Nazi party becoming the second most popular party in the country. That doesn't seem to phase them. A lot of these figures that I alluded to are in government right now that have anti-Semitic views. Some of them could very well be the face of the government in the next election. 
So it's not like anti-Semitism. It's not like the old views that led to the Holocaust have gone away in Germany. But that's all circumstantial. Another, by far the most important reason why we, like you said, give a cautionary tone to stuff like this is Bible prophecy. And there's one particular prophecy in Ezekiel 23 that talks about the end time nations of Israel and Judah. And Judah in this place is the state of Israel, what we could say the Jews in the Middle East. And the prophetic, the biblical name of Israel refers to other nations like the United States and Britain. We have plenty of literature on our website for those interested in learning why about that. But it talks about them married to God, and they, these countries have a history with God, even in this modern day, have a history of being sustained by godly miracles, and historically have had been relatively closer to God in terms of morality, in terms of even, even faith, if we could say that, human faith. But according to the prophecy in Ezekiel, these countries, under the poetic names of two women, play the harlot, play, go on an adulterous uh, relationship with countries like Assyria, like Chaldea, these are prophetic names for European countries, and we have plenty of literature about that as well. In Assyria's case, that's modern Germany, and it refers to Jerusalem, or the modern state of Israel, having a love affair with Assyria, having a love affair with the Chaldeans, which is uh, prophetically Italy. In other words, Europe, Europe in general, but especially the Germans. Uh, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry has spoken quite a bit about how this love affair involves uh, trusting these countries with your with defense, trusting in Germany to protect you rather than God. Uh, as the prophecy specifically talks about verse 12 in Ezekiel 23 about captains and rulers clothed most, most gorgeously, horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men. In other words, the military. Israel, instead of trusting, or the state of Israel, instead of trusting in God for its defense, for its protection, looks on the rising might of countries like Germany, looks on what they're doing and says, I want some of that. I want to be involved in this. I want them to come in with me. I want to come in with them. This is who in whom I trust. And you can see that with Israel trusting its most vulnerable, most critical components of its defense mechanisms. You can see that in Israel trusting in German technology. That's another thing. Never mind the fact that they trust Germany to not uncover how the Aero 3 works and how to shut it off. If, say, Israeli tanks are built with German technology, if they're using German submarines, the Germans know exactly how to turn those things off in case if things go awry. Who's not to say they won't, if Germany and Israel go to war, Israel uses German submarines in its defense. The Germans know exactly how to turn those off and those become completely useless. That is extremely trusting. And as the prophecy goes, as we've talked about, so many times before, in verse 22, God says that he will raise up these lovers against the Jews, against the state of Israel, and they will be against them on every side. That, in other words, there's going to be a betrayal coming. This betrayal is because of these foreign allies and really just flows from as a logical progression from trusting in these countries, both from a physical perspective and a spiritual one. And so Israel trusts Germany with systems like the Arrow 3, like its spyware for tracking terrorists, at its own peril. And it's not going to be long before we see these prophecies come to fruition. And that is why we are watching this quote-unquote historic weapons sale. It is historic, and I, I like the way you've titled that in your article on thetrumpet.com. The title is Defense System Sale Marks Historic Turning Point in the Israel-Germany Relations. 
And you're quoting, that's in quotes, because you're quoting Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's a, a strong leader, who's trying to, uh, you know, strengthen and save his his country. And there's a lot of uh, respect and laudable things about uh, that prime minister, but he says this, 75 years ago, the Jewish people were crushed to ashes in Nazi Germany. 75 years later, the Jewish state gives Germany another Germany tools to defend itself. What Israeli pride, what a historic turning point. And as you said there, yes, it is historic. It's part of a larger trend. It's part of a larger ongoing history, as even as even the prime minister recognizes there. But it's not historic for the reasons that, that they hope. I really appreciate how you emphasize that. Your national defense is the most trusting and most personal relationship you can have as a nation, isn't it? It's the safety. It's the basic daily bodily safety of you and all your people, all your families, all the people within your borders. And if your nation has had a relationship with God, as you said, then you've entrusted him with that relationship, with that security. But as you alluded to, in Germany, they trust. So besides your article, Defense System Sale Marks Historic Turning Point in Israel-Germany Relations, uh, where would you guide our listeners for a little bit more about this topic? Well, for our listeners, the context is a little bit different. It features different leaders and different countries technically, but the principles remain the same. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, and the October 2014 Philadelphia Trumpet Print Edition wrote an article, The Significance of Germany's Break from America. The Significance of Germany's Break from America. That was when the uh, spying scandal between Barack Obama and uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel's cell phone popped out. Uh, so a bit of a different context, but he goes in through these prophecies uh, that I just referred to in Ezekiel 23 and gives them more of a modern context and brings uh, the Jewish state of Israel into it as well. So if our listeners would like to learn more in that sense, that's where I would recommend them. The Significance of Germany's Break from America. Well, thank you very much for covering that. Thank you for covering the Middle East and this particular trend of Israel trusting Germany for its national defense. Mihailo Zekic, we look forward to hearing more from you on Friday in our Week in Review program. Thank you for having me. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome back. I'm Philip Nice. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. That's our tagline there at the beginning of the show. Let's talk about discovery. I'm with one of our Trumpet writers here in our KPCG studio in Edmond, Oklahoma. He watches the Anglo-America region for the Week in Review. He can tell you the number of indictments and counts lodged against Donald Trump, the number of carrier strike groups in the United States Navy, the value of the dollar as compared to the euro. He can also tell you about the laws of thermodynamics because he teaches chemistry here at the Imperial Academy K-12 through school. And he's also versed in the foraging behaviors of certain woodland creatures and has knowledge about all manner of science and history. The times he comes into my office and we talk about the topics of the day I consider to be my own personal continuing 
education program. So Andrew Miller, you and I have talked about many things. Uh, recently, we've been talking about something that the Trumpet editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, has emphasized and has encouraged trumpet writers to keep track of and to emphasize. It's something that could get lost in the shuffle of all the other news and economy and politics and trends that are are filling our headlines. But he's and he's exhorted us to stay focused on this specific thing that falls into the category of discovery. So we human beings, we've been looking to the heavens for a long time. Uh, but interestingly, over the history of the PCG, which is the publisher of the trumpet, uh, there have been huge advancements in the field of looking to the heavens in astronomy. Uh, one of them was the Hubble Space Telescope, which launched not too long after the PCG did. And the other was the James Webb Space Telescope, which launched a little over a year and a half ago. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Just the amount of information and discovery people have found out about the heavens in the past century is astounding. When God told Abraham to look into the heavens uh, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, if he was in Palestine on a dark night with no light pollution, he probably could have counted 2,000 of those stars. And for most of human history, that's what we could see. Uh, now, getting around 1600s, Galileo Galileo's time, you start started coming up with some convex lenses and stuff like that that really brought that number up into the tens of thousands. Uh, but now, just in the past generation, within my lifetime, between the Hubble telescope, which launched in the early 1990s, uh, and the James Webb telescope, which launched just last year, we're down to the point where you can actually see billions and billions of stars Actually, James Webb, just to bring this into uh, current news, since this is kind of a current news program, uh, they actually just discovered um, a new galaxy. They called it Macy's Galaxy. They, they named it after a, a lucky girl who put her name into a raffle or something <laughs> like that, and her name was Macy. So they called it Macy's Galaxy, and it's one of the four oldest galaxies we know about. Based on spectrometry, uh, it's about 13 billion years old, which is amazing to think about. I mean, there's uh, there's definitely some assumptions that go into those uh, numbers. They're assuming you're reading the wavelengths of those galaxies correctly. Uh, but based on other measurements, the James Webb Telescope it estimates that the, the universe itself is really only about 13.3 billion years old. And so a 13 billion year old galaxy means you're seeing images of this galaxy as it would have looked only about 300, uh, 300 million years after creation. Uh, 300 million years, that sounds like a long time, but in the as a percentage of 13.3 billion years, I mean, you're back to the very first chapters of creation. And for a long time, scientists actually thought that uh, a galaxy took a billion years to evolve. Now you're seeing fully formed ones only 300 million years after creation, which is really raising the question. I mean, that's as far back as James Webb has been able to see so far. But as you, if you push the technology and go back further, it's like, how far did, did these, uh, did, did God just create these instantaneously? Like he turned on the light switch one day and then there's, there's galaxies because it's, you're pushing it all the way back to like the event horizon of creation getting very close and still seeing fully formed galaxies. So these are fully formed, and obviously at this point it's impossible to know how long they had been fully formed, right? I mean, they, as you said, that there's a, a question of, of when they would have been 
sprung into existence. Does this this sort of upend to some degree the previous models and the previous understanding of astronomers as to the age of the universe and the nature of the universe? I don't know if it necessarily upends uh, the age of the universe, but it definitely upends their models of like what the early universe is like. Uh, past models had assumed that, like I said, at some point about 13 and a half billion years ago, there was like mat- space and energy and matter and time just came into existence. And it was kind of all like a swirling mess of something that then... Um, slowly converged into stars and galaxies and something like that. Now, the the observations are getting from James Webb. They have not, at least not yet, haven't challenged what science believes about the age of the universe. Scientists still believe that's about 13.3 billion years old. But it is showing that the early universe, instead of being a swirling mess of stardust that converged into galaxies, was actually ordered galaxies, which is why I brought up that point uh, a moment ago, that like now as you get further back in time, you're wondering, is like, were the galaxies structured from the, the moment beginning. of creation? <laughs> from the beginning. I thought I saw a headline, and maybe that was just a sort of a preliminary thing, but where people said, oh, well, the universe must be twice as old as we thought it was. I don't know, was that kind of an evolutionary throw another few billion years in there type of approach, do you think? You're, you're saying that the serious astronomers are saying no, it's not that the universe is just like way older and these things evolved. The early universe is definitely different than we thought it was. Well, that is a good question. I didn't actually see that particular headline, although I do see where a scientist might be coming from that. As like, mm-hmm. if you're taking, if you're taking the premise that stars evolve uh, from stardust into galaxies, and now you're seeing fully formed galaxies thirteen billion years ago then you're going to have to come to one of two conclusions. It's like, one, either the galaxies formed much quicker than we thought, maybe even instantaneously, which was the point I just made. Or you could take, if, if that headline you're talking about is correct, you could you could claim that, like, well, maybe we were wrong about the age of the universe and it's actually much older than we thought it was and it took time to come into being. Yeah, I, I would be surprised if if that was the case. It's actually really kind of an interesting question because uh, religious people have always <laughs> believed the Genesis 1 account where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, science has not always, like agnostic science has not always believed that. I mean, it was common amongst the ancient Greek philosophers to believe that the universe didn't have a beginning, it just it was always there. As a matter of fact, that was very common all the way up into the 1930s for science to believe there there was no begin. The Bible's wrong. There was no beginning. Now everyone scientist agrees that there was a beginning, and that's largely due to the work of two scientists. One, uh, Henry Becquerel, in 1896, discovered radioactive elements. The fact that uranium decays into lead. And so if uranium decays into lead, the fact that there's still uranium around shows that the uh, there was no fast eternity matter. At some point, the uranium was created. Uh, and Mr. Herbert Armstrong actually made a big point of that in his book, Does God Exist? 
he, he uh, the first articles that he wrote that became that book, he was writing in the 1920s when scientists believed that the universe was always around. So it was very important to him to debunk that claim. Today, it may not be as important to debunk that claim because almost no one believes that, uh, largely due to the work of actually the namesake of the Hubble telescope, Edwin Hubble. Uh, he's, Edwin Hubble isn't the guy, I didn't know this uh, until recently, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit <laughs> that. But Edwin Hubble actually isn't the guy involved with the telescope. He's the guy the telescope was named after. He died in 1953. But in 1929, he published a series of findings where he realized that the galaxies he was observing were moving away from each other. As a matter of fact, like space was expanding in all directions. And so he, he actually calculated as best he could uh, the rate space was expanding and then back calculated. He said, well, if space has always been expanding at that rate, then 13 and a half billion years ago, it was compressed into a singularity that exploded. That's what scientists now call the Big Bang. And I don't like the term Big Bang because it just implies like a randomness or like it just bang and it was there. Because when you actually look at what what Edwin Hubble was looking at when he talked about the Big Bang, he's like, okay, he's like, well, at first there was nothing. And then all of a sudden space and time existed and it started expanding at this rate and it's been expanding at roughly that, that rate ever since. And scientists didn't like that initially because it sounded too much like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's actually a scientist we quote in our um, Incredible Universe Potential booklet. This is Dr. Gerald Schroeder, where he had said the Big Bang is the best proof of God since Moses came down from Sinai. The Big Bang theory is describing the scientific process of something from nothing physical. The Bible is describing that all creation came from nothing physical, but it did come from something spiritual, God. Well, I don't like the term Big Bang, uh, and I don't think scientists are even close to fully understanding it. It is proof that we've had just within the past hundred years that space and time uh, and matter and energy didn't always exist, as close as Edwin Hubble could calculate. They came into existence. God created them little over 13 billion years ago. And now with this new telescope, you're seeing galaxies that are almost that old, which is why, I mean, I think some scientists are starting to claim, it's like, well, maybe the universe is way older than 13 billion years and we just don't understand it because otherwise how can a galaxy be as old as the universe? But then Edwin Hubble's uh, calculations and, and the model that his observations fed into then becomes disrupted, right? That's why they're saying that it's messing up the, the models of the early universe, because you can't just throw another billion or 13 billion right. or they, they, years on. Like I said, I haven't read the article, but there's definitely no proof that James Webb, the James Webb Telescope has not provided any proof yet that Edwin Hubble was wrong in claiming that the universe is 13 and a half billion years old. It's just said that there's galaxies that are also pushing 13 and a half billion years old, which to me, I mean, <laughs> laying religious bias aside, I mean, there is definitely a point where uh, for, for religious people, there's that faith is the evidence of things unseen. But laying faith aside for a moment and just looking at the data the James Webb telescope's giving us, the expansion rate of the universe indicates that it's 13 and a half billion years old. And the spectrometry 
values of the galaxies indicate that there are galaxies that are about 13 billion years old, which is really pushing at the fact that it seems that they were fully formed galaxies right from the beginning of the universe. Something like in the beginning. God created that. And so it wasn't necessarily that in beginning God created stardust and then took a billion years to form it into a galaxy, but like in the beginning, bang, and then there were fully formed galaxies. Right, and we, and we clearly uh, weren't there, and we clearly don't know how matter and energy came out of not mana, matter and not energy, uh, but we're seeing... We're, we're directing our attention to this category of discovery, like I say, because Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said, keep watching that. Watch that James Webb telescope. You'll remember the complexity of that, how many years it was delayed, how many billions of dollars it was uh, over budget and so forth. And yet something was driving people to build this thing, which which could have you know blown up on the launch pad. It could have you know, uh, malfunction in orbit. It could have, uh, so many things could have gone wrong. It, it took miracles almost, or maybe it did, to unfold properly, to cool, uh, to get at the right temperature and so forth, this uh, James Webb Space Telescope. But it did. It unfurled itself. It, it pointed out into the heavens and toward the beginning of the universe. And we're looking back in time, and there is... Something that we need to understand when we're looking out at, at these images and, and what we're reading alongside these images. And, and we had these amazing discoveries from Hubble, but that wasn't enough. Something compelled people to build this thing, <laughs> to put it out there, and to discover more. You see some of these comparisons between Hubble and Webb, and it's, it's, it's impressive, but it's, it's teaching us more and more about this, this universe of ours. Yeah, it is amazing. Uh, and just the sheer numbers of the stars uh, that have been discovered by Hubble and are expected to be discovered by James Webb boggles the mind. I mentioned before that like in, in Abraham's day, like if you went out in a dark night, you could see about 2,000 stars. I think some of the Babylonians back then had like convex quartz lenses where maybe you could see a few more. It wasn't until like the 1600s that you started getting what you'd know today as like a telescope that you just stand in your bedroom and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and look at the sky where you can see thousands more. But they actually said the Hubble telescope uh, during its years in operation discovered not 100 billion stars, but 100 billion galaxies. And many scientists expect James Webb will discover 100 billion more galaxies. And so if the estimation's correct, you're looking at 200 billion galaxies. And a medium-sized galaxy contains about 200 billion stars. You go 200 billion galaxies times 200 billion stars, you're looking at 48 sextillion stars. Sextillion's probably not a number... um, you hear many days, like even the national debt's not at that magnitude, <laughs> uh, although it may get there one of these days. But 48 sextillion, it's a 48 with 21 zeros behind it. And if each of those galaxies, let's say, just throwing some numbers out there, had 100 million planets, that's a pretty conservative estimate, that, that'd be like 24 quintillion planets. You're getting to the point where, um, when <laughs> going back to this Abraham example, when God told Abraham your descendants will number as the stars of the heaven and the sands that are on the seashore. I'm pretty sure Abraham thought the sand thing was a little more impressive. It might not be. 
There's a lot of sand on there's a lot of sand on a lot of seesaws, but James Webbling is like there might actually be more stars in the universe than there is sand on the seashore. I should have brought that number. I did the math once to make sure that I knew what I was talking about. I just can't remember what the estimate for sand particles on planet Earth is. It was a lot. <laughs> but uh, the, the, that 48 sextillion number might actually be more than more stars in the heaven than sand on the earth. It's astounding as you're describing that. This is the first time I've done this, but as you're describing that, what came into my imagination was the grains being the planets. <laughs> you know, it's almost like that. You almost have to think of it that way as if there's these grains spread throughout the universe and on each of those grains is a potential earth right i mean is is the potential for for earth uh, very very broadly speaking and i'm thinking about it that way and speaking about it that way because i'm thinking of how unusual how unexpected is it that all of this exists and that we can know about it that human being you know six foot tall thing made out of matter with you know two eyes and a nose and a mouth and you know arms that even if you put us all together, it's it's astounding that we would be able to to look out there and see this or comprehend any of this. But it's made in such a way, and we're made in such a way that we can comprehend it. And now we're comprehending it more than we ever have. There's something significant to that. And that's an amazing point. And um, this is brought out uh, to some extent in our Incredible Universe Potential booklet is just the fact that planet Earth... Planet Earth is not in the center of the Milky Way, uh, and it's not in the center of the universe. We don't even know where the center of the universe is. Uh, we don't even know where the edge of the universe is. But it's kind of like out on the edge of one of the tentacles of the Milky Way in a place that's perfectly situated for viewing the rest of the universe. If it was in the middle of the Milky Way, you would have just seen the stars next to it, but there'd been the, the light would have just crowded out. You couldn't have seen the rest of it. It's because it's kind of in this obscure outlying part of the Milky Way that you can actually see outside of your own galaxy and into other ones, which is really inspiring because it's, uh, I mentioned Galileo and um, his work with telescopes and uh, showing us um, that there, there were a lot more stars than meets the eye. And, and he suffered a lot of persecution from the Catholic Church because at the time there, there were priests who had misinterpreted the scriptures to think that the earth was the center of the universe. They figure it's like God's plan <laughs> is unfolding on earth, therefore the earth is the most important place. It's the geographic center of the universe. The planets orbit around the earth. The sun orbits around the earth. Everything orbits around earth. The earth is the center of anything. And I'm sure a lot of people thought, found that idea appealing. And then Galileo disproved it with observation that no, the, the, the earth actually rotates around the sun and the sun's actually not even that big of a star. It rotates around the center of the Milky Way galaxy and and, and the, even the Milky Way, I'm not sure if Galileo found this much out, but even the Milky Way is not the universe. It's It's just a big part of the universe, which some people found that uncomfortable that the earth was just kind of in such an out of the way location, but it was definitely not a haphazard choice on God's part to figure that the earth is less important because it's not the center of all things physically. He actually put it in a place where you can see the rest of the universe. If the, if the earth was actually the center of, let's forget the universe, let's just say it was the center of the Milky Way, 
like I said, you wouldn't be, uh, you might be in an important spot, but you wouldn't know it because it's like, you wouldn't be able to see anything. You kind of got to be in this. It's, it's, it's put in the perfect location for v- viewing the cosmos, not for being the center of the cosmos. That's a great point. A, a more recent astronomer, Carl Sagan, I believe his first name is Carl. Uh, he lived and was popular in the seventies, I think. Anyway, there's this famous little video where he, it's the earth you might have seen it, and it's the—it's called the pale blue dot because it, it, it recedes like you move further, further away, and of course it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And he's making the point about how small we are and how insignificant we are, and how our wars, but even our our, our arts and our you know best of our human spirit is all nothingness. It's all nothing. It doesn't matter. You know, here we are on this tiny planet that's not the center of its solar system. It's not the center of its galaxy. It's not the center of the universe. And it, and it recedes. It gets tinier and tinier and tinier. And it's a powerful point. It's evocative if you if you see it. And yet that very thing, like you just said, is by design so that the people, the little tiny grains of sand on the grain of sand, can see that universe and that that those galaxies and those stars. And what I'm realizing, I, I, I always say astronomy used to be the least practical thing in the world to me, <laughs> or in the universe <laughs> to me. Like, oh, it's, it's not practical. I can't do anything with this information. But what you're telling me and what I'm thinking of as you're saying this is there's a reason we can see it. And there's a reason that Hubble launched when it did and that James Webb launched when it did and that they're showing us what they're showing us. So if you could just finish up, maybe just with any concluding thoughts you had, and then just let us know those those two uh, booklets that you mentioned that you might refer the the listener to to just kind of get more of this in mind. Definitely what we'll put in the show notes this time is the Does God Exist booklet by Herbert W. Armstrong and the Incredible Universe Potential by Joel Hilliker. The Does God Exist booklet goes through and really makes a direct point that a creation demands a creator. There was no past eternity of matter. Matter had a beginning. Energy had a beginning. And that beginning was not physical, which really just stands to common sense. If the physical universe of matter, energy, space, time, if it all had a beginning, it becomes extremely difficult to conceive of a physical cause for the origin of physics. It's like, (laughs) if you read both of them, you should probably read the Does God Exist first, because that gives you the big picture overview. And the Incredible Universe Potential gets into a little bit more of the details. It's been recently updated to tell you a little bit more about just the engineering marvel that the James Webb Telescope is, uh, and what it's discovered so far. I don't think it's been updated with this new Macy's Galaxies discovery that I just told you about, but there's been a couple other galaxies that are almost as old as that. And it delves into a little bit more, too, about how this is just upending what scientists thought about the early universe. Like I said, it hasn't it hasn't necessarily upended the idea that the universe is 13.3 billion years old. Most scientists still believe that. But it is showing that there are fully formed galaxies that are have been there since practically the very beginning of the universe. And it comes back to in the beginning. The simple phrase, you've read it, you've accepted it, you haven't thought much about it, or maybe you have. And yet here's even more depth to that concept of the physical universe had 
a non-physical origin, I think, as you wrote in your email to me, um, some force from outside the entire universe, you wrote, must have ordered it at some point before James Webb can see. So the physical universe came from a non-physical origin. This is right there for astronomers, for scientists, for human beings to see. Uh, and there is a reason that we can see it. And there is a reason that, that uh, these images and this information is coming to us more and more. And it's inspiring. It's, it's, there's hope up there. And that's why Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has directed us to uh, lift up our eyes to the heavens, so to speak. So that was Does God Exist? was that short booklet by Herbert W. Armstrong. And the updated booklet, our awesome universe potential. That's actually by Trumpet, our founder, Joel Hilliker. You can read both of those at thetrumpet.com. Read those, or if you've read them before, flip through them. And and uh, more than that, keep an eye out for those astronomy-related headlines. Don't scroll by those. Have a look at those. Crunch those numbers. Cast your, your vision and your mind out there toward those, those uh, planets and stars that, like you said, Andrew, might well be more numerous than the sands of the sea. Thanks for being with us and explaining that to us. We appreciate it, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Email us your thoughts, Trumpet Hour listeners, letters at thetrumpet.com. We've gone into the realm of discovery here, so give us, give us your thoughts about astronomy, about the, the universe, about uh, whether you find it very, very impractical, as I used to th think of the subject, or if you're starting to catch on, like I am starting to catch on, the, the wonder and, and the vision and the meaning and the, 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 the fact that you can't divorce those stars and that greatness and that hugeness and that vastness from little tiny human beings on a pale blue dot. Letters at thetrumpet.com. And uh, again, we thank Andrew Miller for being with us. We thank Mihailo Zekic for the earlier segment. And we thank Isaac Lorenz, who's back there furiously crunching the keyboard buttons and so forth to get this produced. We appreciate him. He, he works hard. He works late and he works, works well. So we appreciate him. And we thank you most of all, Trumpet Hour listeners, for listening to Trumpet Hour, and we look forward to being back with you on Friday for our Week in Review program.